Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Would you just let that sink in for a moment? Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Uh, that is meaningful. That's a meaningful verse. And for, for some of you here today, that's just, that's just the sermon in a sentence that speaks to your soul. Um, and, and I just hope that you're encouraged by that and by all of our time here together. Um, if this is your first time to hear at Windsor Road, my name is Randy, and I'm the lead minister here at the church. We're just delighted to get the privilege of uh, worshiping with you today on this uh, Palm Sunday. And we're going to have a message uh, from the Gospels on the Palm Sunday event. Uh, I've, there's a part of me that wants to say Merry Christmas with all of the snow <laughs> that's out. But uh, anyway, it's, 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 I, I left that sermon a few months ago. So it's, it's going to be Palm Sunday today. And where we talk about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in that event, we learn something about who he is, and we also learn something about ourselves and the expectations that sometimes we place upon uh, God, the expectations of who we want him to be and what we want him to do. And he's the king, and he is who he says he is, and, and he does according to his sovereign mercy and care over us. And so uh, that's what we're going to read uh, as we look at um, Jesus' triumphal entry. Uh, but before we get to that, let me just tell you a little bit about a not-so-triumphal entry that happened. A uh, month ago, I returned from Haiti with a team here at church. It was a wonderful week of mentoring and training and teaching our leaders, three of our elders, staff. We connected with Pastor Isen that we have a partnership with, and he gathered elders and pastors and leaders in the Circa Carvajal village area, and there were uh, 50 or 60 of us, and it was just a delightful time of learning. Sometimes traveling in Haiti can be iffy because of how the infrastructure can be, and we didn't have any really serious delays while we were in Haiti getting from place to place. We did have a little bit of a delay, well, a lot of a bit of a delay as we were traveling home. Now, it takes an hour and 45 minutes to fly from Port-au-Prince to Miami. And then from Miami to Chicago, it takes two hours and 45 minutes. And then the trip from Chicago to Champaign takes six hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> really? Really, let me explain. We left Chicago a little late, but you know they add margin to the time schedule so that you can get on time. So we left a little late. That's okay. It's a 27-minute flight from runway to runway. 
So we are getting ready to land, having left partly cloudy skies in Chicago. And as we are approaching our Champaign-Urbana community, I happened to notice that it was kind of getting cloudy. And then as we were approaching the airport, there was like a dome of fog that had I noticed over our communities. And I thought, well, our pilot, he knows what he's doing. So I'm not even paying attention. I'm, you know, looking at the magazine. And I happen to glance out the window because I hear the landing gear, you know, uh, uh, you know come down, detract, retract, whatever. And I glance out the window, and I happen to see the runway lights adjacent to us. And I'm thinking to myself, should I be seeing runway lights? Shouldn't, shouldn't they be, like, beneath us? And right as I was having that thought, it was like our pilot stepped on the gas and accelerated back up into an ascent and got on the comm and said, well, folks, obviously that's not how we do it. <laughs> um, there is such a fog over the airport, and the, I, I'm going to try one more time to see the runway, and if not, I'll have to go back. And so I think it's important for him to be able to see the runway. <laughs> so he tries, uh, he loops around our community another time. He tries for another uh, landing, and it just doesn't happen. We're 100 feet from landing, and we have to go back to Chicago. Our families are there at the airport. Children, spouses are waiting. There's a ticker tape parade waiting for us here, you know. And we have to fly back to Chicago, and we land, and the flight gets canceled, actually, and rescheduled for 6.30 the next morning. Well, that's not going to happen. So uh, we, that is, that is to say, we're not going to wait. So we rented a van, and uh, we drove down, and we got in a little after 1.30 in the morning, and the ticker tape parade had since gone home, and they were in deep rim, and uh, the street, streets were pretty bare on Daniel Street, uh, and uh, it was a not-so-triumphal entry um, because of the fog. Fog can do that. Fog can obscure reality. Jesus' ride into Jerusalem uh, on March the 29th, A.D. 33. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger and Justin Taylor have co-authored an excellent book that I would recommend called uh, The Final Days of Christ. And it's about the most important week in the life of the most important person who ever lived. And they've done the math and they've concluded that Palm Sunday, historical Palm Sunday, was March the 29th, A.D. 33. And on that day, there was a fog hovered over Jerusalem, but it had nothing to do with the weather. It was a fog of spiritual resistance. And it was a fog of unrealistic expectations about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. 
And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. All four Gospel writers include Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. You'll find that on page 878 of your church Bibles. 878, 879. And as we read these verses, and as we think about you know, our expectations of what we think Jesus should be and do, versus who Jesus really is, and what he actually came to do, as I read these verses, I want us to be thinking, okay, what is the point of Palm Sunday? Why did Jesus enter Jerusalem in this way? What message is he trying to communicate, not only uh, to the city then, but to this city and this community here and now? Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he, that is Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. So what is the point of this trip on Palm Sunday? What message is Jesus wanting to communicate to them and to us? Here it is. Jesus entered Jerusalem to invite Israel to choose his divine rule over their lives. Jesus entered Jerusalem to, to invite Jerusalem to receive him, to accept him, to accept his peace as the long-awaited messianic king. So in a word, the purpose of Palm Sunday was this. Choose. Choose. I have come as your king to give you the peace of heaven. King Jesus offers peace. Now choose. There it is. King Jesus offers peace. Now choose. That's the point of Palm Sunday. It, it, what Jesus was doing was uh, 
communicating a living parable. Uh, it was a dramatic message. Jesus had spoken parables. This was a dramatic parable. This was a, a parable reenacted, a message to the city teeming with hundreds and thousands who had gathered for the high holy days of Israel's history, the Passover feast, the celebration in Israel's history when they were delivered uh, from Egyptian slavery. Jesus has come to offer deliverance from another kind of slavery, a slavery to sin. And his trip was a carefully orchestrated entry, deliberately done to communicate his self-understanding. So in the triumphal entry, in Palm Sunday, there's, no, there's none of this Jesus not knowing who he is or being confused about his identity. There never was that. Rather, this is overt. This is clear. This is uh, deliberate. This is a, a first-degree communication. Your prophesied messianic king is here. And I want you to see as we just kind of walk through these verses... Uh, how G what Jesus does to communicate this dramatic message. Look in verses 29 and 30. It says that Jesus drew near to um, the twin villages of Bethphage and Bethany. That's about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. So think, you know, from here to Panera, okay? That's the distance of uh, this journey, this triumphal entry. And he arranged to have um, cult prepared for him, uh, upon which no one has ever yet sat. Let that sink in for just a minute. Kings don't ride in used cars because he's a king. And he sends two disciples after it. And he tells them, you know, when you're asked why you're taking this, here are the words that you are to use. The Lord has need of it. And that is intentional language. It's called the language of royal levy. In the ancient world, in ancient monarchies, uh, the, when the king needed a possession, he just showed up at your place and he claimed it. Why? Because he's the king. And it's, it's just royal, eminent domain. That's what Jesus was declaring there. This cult upon which no one had ever yet sat. Now, what do you think happens when you get on an animal that hasn't been broken? Hmm? And then you steer that animal into a crowd. Hmm? Well, I know what would happen to me. Not Jesus. This colt does not fear the crowd because the colt knows its master. And he who created the sun and the moon and the stars and all living things, the colt knows its master. See? Jesus exercises control as the king of creation. And verse 37 says he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, look, for all the mighty works that they had seen. What mighty works? 
Well, just glance back at Luke chapter 18. The, like the healing of the man born blind. Uh, glance back at Luke chapter 17, verse 11. The cleansing of the ten lepers. And then what about Luke chapter 16? The healing of this very sick man on the Sabbath. Those mighty works. And, and perhaps um, the, the mightiest of the mighty works, John tells us in John chapter 11, the raising of Jesus' friend, Lazarus, from the dead. Those mighty works. Those mighty works which broadcasted the messianic hope that Israel had. Their deliverer has come. If he has the power to heal and raise the dead, then what next? What's going to happen next? I mean, up till now, the Gospels never record Jesus riding or on a mounted beast. He's always walking, but not here. His actions are triggering you know, messianic memories and hopes and aspirations on behalf of the Hebrew people. Why, as this event was happening, the God's people are going, what's this like? This is like 1 Kings chapter 1 when Solomon rode into Jerusalem and people were acclaiming him king. What is this like? And people throwing their cloaks as if to lay a royal carpet for the king. Well, that's like 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu and his entry. And then what about the prophet Zechariah? In Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. Oh my goodness. No wonder the crowd chanted what they did here in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Why, that's Psalm 118, verse 22. That's a messianic psalm. Blessed is the king. Jesus' disciples are acclaiming him, the royal messianic king, the fulfillment of Israel's prophets, our royal deliverer. In the name of the Lord, he, he's coming as a representative of Yahweh, as if to say, now, finally, peace and glory that is in heaven will now fall upon earth. Oh, God, let it be. Let it be. Before March the 29th, Jesus would perform a miracle, and he would often say something like, let's not talk about this. Don't mention anything. Don't tell anybody what's just happened here. Here on this date, he not only receives it, but he's encouraging it. That's why when the Pharisees protest, you know, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus says, that is not going to happen. Not today. 
Verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, this event is of such importance, it requires a response, human or otherwise. The cult knows who its king is. The stones know who its king is. What's your problem? That's what's going on. Oh, and here's where it gets interesting. Let me let you in on a preacher's secret, okay? We preachers, we like passages of Scripture like this because we will often use Palm Sunday to talk about those fickle crowds, those fickle crowds. They cried Hosanna on Palm Sunday, and then on Good Friday they yelled, Crucify him, those fickle Fickle crowds, bad crowds, bad crowds. <laughs> it makes for a good preaching point because we preachers, you know, we sometimes like to scold, and this is a good, and, and we like to scold, but because it's in a passage like this, we can get away with it. We scold about the perils of being wishy-washy and are you going to be a Palm Sunday Christian? Are you going to be a Good Friday Christian? Are you going to be a Hosanna Christian? Are you going to be a crucifying Christian? What's it going to be? Huh? And then we like to, then we like to say that just before we say, now we're going to take an offering. <laughs> right? That's our little secret, right? Are you going to give like a Palm Sunday Christian? Are you going to give like a Good Friday Christian? Right? Let's pray. That kind of Oh, my. That's our preacher's secret. Here's the deal, though. Here's the deal. Pay attention so, so that you know next time, all right? That, that little preacher sermon assumes there's just one crowd. But the fact of the matter is there were two crowds that day. There were. There were two crowds. And, and one crowd was the exaltation crowd. It was, it was the Galilean pilgrims that came with Jesus on their way down the hill. Okay? That, that was the exaltation crowd. But then... It, if you do a careful study of the Gospels, and particularly Matthew 21, 10, there's the establishment crowd. And they're the crowd. In fact, Matthew 21, 10 says that the crowd in the city, after the commotion of Good Friday, the, you know what crowd's, that crowd's response was? Who's this? Who's this? Two crowds. And, you, and so that's a recipe for conflict. And so the conflict's going to happen during Holy Week. And Jesus knows the outcome. Jesus knows which crowd is going to get its way. And that's why we read about his, his uncontrollable weeping in verses 41 and following. Do you see that? And when he drew near and saw the city... That's where the establishment crowd was. He wept over it. 
And he just didn't, you know, get misty-eyed. This is, he, this is uncontrollable sobbing, which if you could have just observed the scene, you would have seen a crowd cheering, chanting Psalm 118, uh, a royal carpet of peasant robes upon which this donkey walked and Everybody seems excited if you're looking at the people, but then you see the person on the colt. He is uncontrollably sobbing. Jesus' uncontrollable weeping was over Jerusalem's stubborn unbelief. Would that you, even you, had known on the day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then Jesus speaks of that tragic historic event that will occur in the year A.D. 70 when Titus of Rome will destroy Jerusalem. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You, Jesus says, I have come for peace, but you won't have it. You want what you want, and you want what you want your way, and your fog of stubborn resistance and unbelief and arrogance and pride will be your downfall because you did not know the time of your visitation, your episcopi, episcopal. Take off the prefix and the suffix. Piscop, bishop, oversight, like a shepherd. Shepherding oversight. Jesus says, I've come like a shepherd to watch over the flock. I have arrived to watch over you. I have arrived to shepherd you. And my sheep hear my voice. I have not come to take from you or to tax you. I have come to give. The creator has come for communion and community with his creation. I've come for peace, not a militarized peace, but I've come to bring the peace of heaven to your hearts and to your lives so that you can then share this peace and be a blessing to the world. That's why I've come. But you don't want my peace. I'm bringing peace from the east. But you want peace from the west. A one scholar noted this, and um, I, think, I think he's right on target. About the same day, when Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives from the east, entering Jerusalem on a colt, palm branches, a carpet of peasant cloaks, that's happening from the east. From the west, there was another parade. There was another triumphal entry. There, there would have been at, at some point in time. And the lead 
figure on not a colt, but a stallion, a war horse, would have been Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate's headquarters was in Caesarea Philippi. But he spent the week in Jerusalem because Jerusalem, you know, it swelled. Normally the city was like 40, 50,000, but during the high holy days of Passover, hundreds of thousands gathered. So it's a hotbed. Pilate would have brought with him a thousand armed guards with spears, shields, weaponry, armament. Now back then, it was, it was an expected courtesy for the city fathers, whenever an important dignitary, like Pontius Pilate, who represented Caesar, uh, to go outside the city and then to greet the dignitary as the dignitary came in, you see. So where's, where's Caiaphas? Where are the high priests? Where are the leading city fathers? Well, they're not to the east, I'll tell you that. trying to stay in Pilate's good graces. And they don't like Pilate. But Pilate lets them be who they want to be, and they just have this mobster's understanding. It's peace that's militarized. It's peace by the tip of a spear. And it's, it's peace from below. And Jesus offers the peace of heaven. And he knows what their choice is going to be. But he still offers himself. And he's offering himself to you and me here today. He says, I, I am offering you a peace. And you know, you know what's going to happen, not only to Jerusalem, you know what's going to happen to the Roman Empire. Where's the Roman Empire today? The Roman Empire today is in a thousand different museums. Shattered. Behind glass. That's where the Roman Empire is. That's, that's the outcome of peace from below. Oh, Jesus is offering peace from above. Choose. Your king has come bringing peace. Now choose. That's the point. Now, I feel like I need to interrupt myself because someone may be coming here today saying, Nice Bible talk, pastor. Doesn't apply to me. I'm an American. I vote. I don't do kings. And you know what? I totally understand where you're coming from. I really do. Um, with respect, though, not so fast. Really. Actually, actually, we do kings. We do. I mean, why, why do you think movies such as Lord of the Rings... Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Black Panther. Why do they resonate with our culture? The, the, this resurgence of, of royal superheroes. What, what is that? What is that about? That is about, that is about something you know in your, in your soul is true. Humans are hardwired to admire kings. We're looking for a kingly hero. C.S. Lewis once wrote, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. Even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served 
Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. So with respect, we were made to respect royalty, to seek the true king. And like it or not, you will serve a king, true or pretend. And Jesus is offering truth. Now, I just want you to use your imagination for a moment. Think about what might have happened had Jerusalem received Jesus. Think of, think of the possibilities. What if the Pharisees had said, you know, what, what have we been thinking? What if, what if Caiaphas had said that? The establishment. What if they had received Jesus? What then? And, and what would Jesus have said to them had have they crowned him king? Lord, we realize we've been pursuing selfish ends and earthbound peace, but we want to pursue you. You are the king of peace. What would you have us do? Do you know what Jesus would say? I'm, I'm convinced of this. You know what he would say? He would say, I, I, I'm your king? Yes. Tell us what to do. We will do it. Really? Really? Okay. Put me on that cross. Because I still have to die for your sins. I've come to be the servant king. I've come to give. I've come to sacrifice. I've come to die so that in my death, burial, and resurrection, and the sending of my spirit, you might have life and peace, and you might be powerful witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. So you see, what I'm saying is that had they received Jesus, it would have been the same end for Jesus, but not for them. What I'm trying to tell us is that, you know, whenever we go our own way, whenever we ignore the, the peace which Jesus offers, we forfeit all the possibilities that might take place had we followed him in the first place. Jesus was offering himself as their peace. But they would have none of it. They wanted Rome. They, they wanted peace by means of chariots and iron and shields and spears. They wanted the city's west side, but Jesus is on the east. What about us? Where, where are we seeking peace? And are the places we're looking able to deliver? I mean, people are looking for peace. I mean, why do you think... Uh, hundreds of thousands gathered in our capital this weekend and across the nation. We're, we want peace. We're looking for it. What, what would our lives be like under the rule of Christ's peace? What about our relationships? Would the front pages of the newspaper be writing about children murdered in Chicago and bombings in Austin and shootings in Maryland? And what just about our community? Let's just talk about our community, Champaign-Urbana. No, let's just talk about our family life. Let's just talk about our address. Under the rule of Christ's peace. Listen, we will never know the peace of the king apart from the king. And we will never have the peace of the king as long as we're trying to be the king. 
So choose. My will or thine be done. See? You know, is it going to be my way or Christ's way? My, peace from below or peace from above? And, and, and what is Christ's will in this matter? What is, what is his will? So he's come to bring us peace, but I mean, what, to, to, to what end? Oh, listen, this is, this, is, this is what I want you to get, and then we'll be done. This Palm Sunday, Jesus rides again, and he wants to say to us what he said in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's his will. That's what our peace is toward. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, see, what I'm afraid of is that we read these verses in Luke's gospel as if Jesus camouflages himself in peasant clothes on a helpless colt, as if to hide his real intention to unsheath his sword and burn people in hell like some angry deity. You know, like he's coming to Jerusalem to bash some heads, so you better steer clear like they do at the running of the bulls in Pamplona. That's not it. That's not it. What's it is Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is our God. Palm Sunday signals God's good pleasure. And, and, and his good pleasure is not, well, I'm going to act like I'm happy even though I'm not. His good pleasure is is. You know, my desire, my joy, my delight is to give. God does not begrudge his benefits. He's not irritated with us. And he's not obligated either. When he gives his flock his kingdom, he is acting out of his father's deepest delight. The deep delight of his father. Oh, I had a taste of a father's deep delight just this week. Um, so my older son, Benjamin, is a police officer at Parkland College. And uh, my wife, Sarah, and I were able to attend his promotion ceremony to sergeant. He was promoted to sergeant uh, this past week. Sergeant from the French, which is derived from the Latin it's a word that means servant. This past week, my son was promoted to servant. And uh, I, I'm so proud of him. He is a godly man, and he serves honorably as a police officer. And his chief uh, spoke of his accomplishments, both professionally and Academically, he talked professionally about how um, Ben's service has enhanced uh, uh, the mission of the police in Parkland. Um, and then academically, Ben's undergraduate degree from the U of I and his MBA from Eastern. And then uh, the, the chief of police there and, and our daughter-in-law, Ablaza, uh, penned the insignia on his collar. And it was the chief's good pleasure to do this, and it was this 
this father's good pleasure to witness this. And I want to tell you, church family, it is God our Father's good pleasure to give us his kingdom. And his kingdom will be ruled by his peace in and through us. But we will never know the peace of the king without the king. So, choose. Your king has come. He's come to bring peace. Now choose. On one side stands the crowd, jeering, baiting, demanding. On the other side stands the carpenter, swollen lips, lumpy eyes, lofty promise. One offers acceptance, the other offers a cross. One offers flesh and flash, the other offers faith. The crowd says, follow us. Christ says, follow me. The crowd says, fit in. Christ says, stand out. The crowd promises to please. Christ promises to save. Pilate's basin of water or the blood of the Savior. God looks at us and he asks, which will be your choice? Choose. Choose. 